Well, all year, uh, we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus, and today, we are continuing a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And depending on how you grew up in terms of your faith or involvement in a church, maybe you were taught these things. I know uh, many of you were confirmed in these, in these truths at some point, uh, the Ten Commandments. But we've said that, that the Ten Commandments for us today, as part of God's moral law, reveal to us how God wants people to live. And ultimately, this way of life can be summed up as learning uh, to love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a law of love. Well, today we're considering the seventh command. We're getting there, folks. Seven out of 10 ain't bad. We've made some progress so far. And this command is to honor marriage. Now, why does God care so much about marriage? Isn't marriage just a piece of paper? I hear that a lot. What even is marriage? And why does God care so much about faithfulness, in particular, in marriage? So, once again, there are a lot of things to unpack here in a very small command. So, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can take it now and open it to Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 12, and we'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. We're going to read through, as we have done the last few weeks, we're going to read through the second half of the Ten Commandments that focuses a little bit more on that horizontal aspect of our love, love for our neighbor, and then we'll unpack the seventh today. Exodus 20, starting with verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that, it, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is God's word. Well, the book of Exodus was written about 4,300 years ago by Moses, who was the mighty prophet and leader of ancient Israel. And Exodus, the story of the Exodus, really describes a key turning point in the history of Israel uh, where God rescued a people for himself. He liberated a people, slaves in Egypt, and then entered into a covenant relationship with them like an official, special relationship with them, which included giving them the law. So the first four commands are focused more on how we are to love the Lord our God, while the remaining six are more about how we love our neighbor as ourselves, as I mentioned. Now, we've seen that our neighbor includes not just like our next door neighbor, but even the closest neighbors to us as individuals, including those in our own homes and families. We were called to honor our father and our mother. We covered that. Uh, And then today... Uh, we are focusing on the seventh command, which reads simply, you shall not commit adultery. So whether you're married or not, committing adultery means having a sexual relationship with anyone other than your spouse. Now this, of course, limits sexuality to a very narrow context of only being appropriate within the covenant of marriage. This is sometimes called the Christian sexual ethic or understanding what's right and wrong. Now, this is something that people in many cultures and times and places have found very difficult to follow. It was no less, if you believe this, it was no less countercultural for ancient Israelites than it was for Christians during the Roman Empire than it is for us today. This is not how the world works. However, it only makes sense, this ethic only makes sense once you understand God's intention for what marriage was supposed to be. So for our remaining time, 
we will have four steps. We will have four things to consider here. First, what marriage is. Second, what marriage is for. Third, what's confusing about marriage in the Bible. There are some confusing things, I will grant you. Number four, how can we obey this command to honor marriage? Okay, you ready? All right, so first, what is marriage? Well, this is related to what I shared last week in terms of the negative prohibition of the law, meaning you shall not, is related to a positive intent of God, positively what we should be doing or ought to do. So the negative prohibition, you shall not commit adultery, is rooted in a positive intent of God for what? For marriage. Now often, we understand the, the, when we understand the positive side of God's intention of the law, God's wisdom and his love and his goodness come into startling focus. Like, oh my goodness, what if society was like this? What if our world was like this? So okay, what is marriage? Well, is marriage really just a piece of paper? Like we sometimes hear. Uh, now, this is the first, I, I would call it, common belief about what marriage is in our culture today. And I think that what this view really means is that people see marriage as just something, it's a way to, to check a legal box to legitimize what is already a legitimate relationship in their eyes. So people who think that this is what marriage is wouldn't see much of any difference or distinction in being married to living together or sleeping together with a partner in a long-term committed relationship. The only difference being in their view is the piece of paper, the marriage license, the marriage certificate. That marriage certificate in their view doesn't really establish the relationship or change the relationship all that much. Now the other common belief about what marriage is today is according, uh, according to our culture has more to do I would say, with celebrating feelings of love, attraction, and personal happiness. You get married because you fell in love. You found your soulmate. You, you, the wedding is simply a celebration of your love for one another. Now that's very romantic and sweet sounding. Um, this view of marriage is uh, unfortunately results in the, the logical conclusion that the marriage is valid only so long as those feelings of love or attraction or happiness remain. You fell in love, but you can fall out of love. Or you might fall in love with someone else. It all depends on how you feel. But what does the Bible say about this? Does God care what marriage is? Well, the answer is yes. In Genesis chapter two, the creator takes the man and puts him in the garden or the world to work it and care for it when he, and, and when he does so, he declares that this man needs a helper suitable for carrying out the vocation of being human. Now from the man's side, which is so rich in meaning, God creates the woman and gives her to the man in the first marriage ceremony. Moses writes about this first wedding in Genesis 2, 24 and 25 which says that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, when I was young, I thought that kind of, you know, you snicker at that like, oh, that would be awkward and weird. Well, but no, actually, now that I'm older, I think this is a really beautiful description of a of, of marriage relationship, and we'll get to that in a second. 
Well, according to this then, therefore, marriage is a gift of God to human beings, not a social construct or a human invention. Uh, and according to God, marriage is one, two becoming one flesh, which means marriage is the whole life union of one man and one woman for life. You have two individual people from two different families, as important as those relationships are, obviously, a couple weeks ago we talked about honoring our parents, who become one new family, a new unit. But to become one flesh, to enjoy this whole life union, means that the two are now joined in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, familially, socially, legally, and so on, in every aspect of life. The union of marriage is covenantal, meaning the husband and the wife vow to remain faithful no matter what, for better and for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, and so on, in all of the ups and downs of life. Now this type of relationship results in radical openness, honesty, and intimacy. This is why Moses wrote that Adam and his wife were both naked and yet they felt, felt no shame. This is really a beautiful description because before the fall to sin, there was nothing in between these two people. There was nothing to hide. They were fully known and fully loved. So the belief that marriage is just a piece of paper, to that belief, the Bible would say, well, yes, but because it is a legal union with paperwork filed at the county courthouse, but it's so much more than that because it is a whole life union. It is a merging of souls. And to the belief that marriage is an expression of feelings of love and attraction and happiness only, the Bible would say, well, it is a physical union, it is an emotional union, but it is so much more than that. It is an unconditional, covenantal relationship. Now this is why sexual faithfulness is so important in marriage. This is why the seventh commandment is against adultery. Because feelings of attraction and desire are so powerful, yet they rise and fall over time. But if this is what marriage is, then committing adultery is breaking your covenant vow. It's becoming one flesh physically with someone without the rest of the relationship, and this is wrong. So first, what is marriage? Well, marriage is the whole life union between one man and one woman for life. Second, what is marriage for? I'm glad you asked. What is marriage for? Oftentimes, when we know what something is for, we can much better assess of whether or not it's being used properly or not. Now, first, God certainly uses marriage for our sanctification. That means to help us grow in godly character and holiness. Because there's nothing that will test your grace and patience in life more than a spouse after the honeymoon period of time is over. You can say amen if you'd like. Okay, and I say this with great love in my heart, okay? I say this with all the love and affection in the world. Uh, do you know how they polish gemstones? They put them in a tumbler with abrasive materials and they bounce into each other and rub against each other until they are beautiful, shiny, and smooth. And that's a lot like a healthy marriage. Over time, and with a lot of grace, this relationship can help smooth out our rough edges. 
it forces us to deal with certain sins and flaws and struggles that we otherwise maybe could ignore. But also, marriage ought to include all of the best elements of a really close friendship, including companionship and regular communication and shared experiences and just a lot of fun. But of the many blessings of marriage, whether it is a tool in the hand of the Lord for our sanctification, or it is just something that it represents a really good and close friendship, uh, of all the blessings of marriage, marriage was always intended to be the context for raising kids. And this relates to the seventh command in terms of human sexuality. You see, the creation mandate, all the way back in Genesis chapter one, is a blessing from God. It's not a curse. It's a blessing from God for humanity when God said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So for us, procreation or having children is one of the God-given purposes of humanity in this age, of people to multiply and fill the earth. Well, how should we do this? Well, if marriage is, only, is the only appropriate context for sexuality, then marriage is the only intended context for having and raising kids. So why does God care about faithfulness in marriage? Well, for a number of reasons, but because one of the purposes for marriage is to provide the context for having and raising kids. But in a broken world, not every couple is physically able to have kids. However, procreation was certainly part of God's positive intent for marriage from the beginning. So what is marriage for? For for so many things, sanctification, companionship, many other things, but at least part of the purpose of marriage is to enjoy the blessing of God to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. Now third, what's confusing about marriage in the Bible? Have you ever read, uh, read the Bible and ended up with more questions than answers? Sometimes I do. Well, some people hear the term biblical marriage and rightly ask, well, what exactly do you mean by biblical marriage? I mean, like, like the marriage between Abraham and Sarah? You remember that time when Sarah couldn't have children and so she had Abraham, her husband, sleep with her maid servant and then she got pregnant and it all, everyone lived happily ever after? You remember that story? Yeah, no, that's not exactly what happened. Or what about the story of Jacob and his wife Leah and his other wife, Rachel, Um, uh, the sisters? Uh, What about King David or King Solomon who, who married many, even hundreds of women? Now these are, are, are examples, and there are many examples in the Bible of marriages that are anything but what we've been talking about so far. So what's going on here? And this is a really good question. Does God approve of this type of behavior? It's in the Bible. Well, here's an unusual realization. Not every marriage in the Bible is biblical. Does that make sense? Not every marriage in the Bible is biblical. There are all sorts of unhealthy, dysfunctional, or even destructive marriage and family relationships that are described in the Bible. Relationships which directly violate the character and the commands of God. But there is a big difference, and here's the point, between what is described in the Bible and what is prescribed or commanded by the Bible. 
The commands of God were that even the king was not to take many wives or his heart would be led astray. This is in Deuteronomy. And also that the people of Israel were not to intermarry with the surrounding peoples or they would turn to after, they would run after their gods. But King Solomon is described as having broken both of these commands. But if you follow his story, if you see how that disobedience plays out in his family, and in the generations to come afterward, it is nothing but dysfunction and brokenness. It doesn't turn out well. In fact, eventually it tragically causes the fracturing of the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, which were eventually weakened and vulnerable and, and at one point conquered in the time of the, the exile. Solomon's practice of marriage is described in the Bible but it is not prescribed for us today. In fact, I believe it's there, it's presented as more of a case study of how messed up marriage and family relationships can get in this broken world. Now, while this can be confusing, or it might be confusing, we must recognize the difference between what is described versus what is taught. Okay, so fourth and finally, how do we obey this command to honor marriage? How might we actually apply this teaching to our lives today? Well, I'll leave you with two thoughts here. First, we must resist seeing our marriages through the lens of culture and see them as the whole life covenantal union that they were meant to be. If marriage is based only on our emotional uh, happiness or fulfillment, then it is inherently unstable. A spouse that is in that type of relationship is fundamentally insecure because their marriage is conditional. Now, if this is your conception of marriage, it's no wonder why divorce is seen by so many as a necessity. You need to get a prenuptial agreement because if anything changes or if anyone isn't happy or feeling as in love or as fulfilled as they used to be, then you'll have to get divorced. But on the other hand, if your marriage is a covenantal relationship, a one flesh type of lifelong union for better and for worse, then there's an incredible amount of stability and security in that type of relationship. Now there will still be conflicts that need to be worked through. And there will still be many hard times in life in this broken world. But when no one's finger is on the eject button, then Reconciliation, forgiveness, healing, repentance, relational growth, these are all more likely. This stability makes dealing with major life changes easier. Changes like having kids or buying a house or moving to a new community or starting a new job or dealing with a major injury or illness or handling uh, a major loss or taking care of aging parents and on and on, easier. Now, not easy, but easier. As a society, we should want married people to have this type of stability and security, a marriage that is not disposable. This type of relationship is the best type of relationship for children to grow up in as well. A situation that is stable and secure is far better for f helping them form a healthy understanding of who they are and how to relate to other people. 
Marriage is a mountain range that endures, not a cell phone to be thrown away every few years for the latest model. So we must see our marriages through this lens and and live out the vows that we make. Not simply to avoid adultery, but to positively join ourselves in every way to our spouse and do whatever it takes to maintain and to grow in that union. Marriage is like a garden and we must pluck out every weed that chokes the life and the love and the joy and the peace out of our marriages. Now second and finally, even though marriage is very important and even though that most people will be married at some point in their lives, not everyone is called to be married. Back in November, I gave a sermon called Redeeming Singleness to try and make this point. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul were not married, and both of those men obviously led good and God-honoring and fulfilling lives. Both were surrounded by meaningful friendships and other relationships with men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. And both used their singleness very productively for the kingdom of God. Furthermore, it's helpful to remember that Jesus taught that marriage is only part of our current age. It's temporary. We will not be married or get married in the age to come. Now, I know that this is hard for some of us to see as a good thing. One reason I suspect is that some of us might be way too dependent on sexual fulfillment to be our main source of love and joy and peace in this life. But in the age to come, every relationship with every other person in the new heaven and earth will be even better and even more joy producing and even more intimate and satisfying and fulfilling than even the best marriages today. For we will be a whole society of people who perfectly know and perfectly love and are joyfully united to one another. Just as God is a perfect loving unity of three equally divine persons, so we will be a world of perfect love without end. Now this is just a stunning vision for the future of human beings, I believe. It's hard to even imagine a society where every single person loves and knows every other person, loves their neighbor in thought, word, and deed all of the time. But for now, how might single people obey the seventh command? Well, one of the more difficult aspects of the way of Jesus has to do with the sexual ethic, that human sexuality is meant to be expressed and enjoyed only in the context of marriage between a man and woman for life. Any sexuality outside this covenant is prohibited. Therefore, if you're single, your commitment to remain celibate, though countercultural and though perhaps very costly, is what it looks like to obey this command. However, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, if this is too much for you, that's okay. But you should get married and not be ruled or mastered by your passions and your desires. Now, of course, that is not only for single people. For married people as well, we, not necessarily celibate, but must remain faithful to and exclusive with your spouse. 
and not be ruled or mastered by our passions or desires for other people either. But in all of these things, we must remember that God's highest goal for his people is holiness. It's Christ-likeness. It's not marriage. I know of Christians who experience same-sex attraction. The goal for them isn't to become heterosexually married. It's to become like Jesus, whether or not they marry or decide to remain single. You shall not commit adultery. May we be a people who honor marriage, not just in deed, but in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. And may we be people who are faithful in marriage, in thought, word, and deed. May we be people who help others remain faithful. And in our faithfulness, may we be people who reflect the glory and the goodness of a God who was and is and ever will be faithful to us in Jesus. Even when we as a people are unfaithful to God, he came after us in the person and work of Jesus. He was faithful to us, even through the cross. He was faithful to us, even through the grave. But Jesus rose again and is alive today and is calling us to follow his way, not on our own, but by the power of his spirit, for his glory, and for our good. So today, let us look to him to be our help and our hope to be faithful. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your commitment, your covenant commitment to us in Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for your patience and your grace and your mercy and forgiveness for us in all of the unfaithfulness that we uh, experience, that we carry out. Lord, we are easily distracted away from you. Our hearts are easily swayed by other people, perhaps by people who are not our spouse. Father, would you forgive us for our unfaithfulness to you and to our spouse? Would you forgive us and would you cleanse us and would you empower us to follow your way, a way that is not easy, but is so good? Father, I pray for the marriages in our church that you would protect them. I pray for the family relationships that we enjoy within this church that you would protect them and provide for us and lead us not into temptation, but in, along the right paths for your name's sake. Father, I pray for our children, the children that would come through the covenant of marriage. Lord, would you protect them? And would you help them learn, despite our flaws and our failings as parents, would you help them learn from you what a truly godly and healthy and faithful marriage looks like? Lord, we are dependent upon you. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.